to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. That's where we will begin together this morning. 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter, is where we will be. We have a wonderful crowd here today. So many people who are visiting with us. We really, really appreciate you all being here, joining us in worship to our great and awesome God. We'll be starting here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Smoke settled in the skies as a myriad of animals were slaughtered and fried. Solomon said that it would be great. He said that it would be awesome. He said that it would be spectacular. But his eyes had never seen, his ears had never heard, and his heart would never have imagined something like this. As the Levites carried the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of the Lord, they passed intricately carved wood that was covered with gold. They passed this cherubim whose wings seemed to stretch for miles. They passed Levitical singers who were arrayed in fine linen, and they had all sorts of wonderful musical instruments. They passed 120 priests who all had trumpets in their hands and they were all praising and giving thanks to the great and awesome God. As the Ark of the Covenant was being carried into the temple of the Lord, songs were raised with voices and volume. A cloud filled the house of the Lord. Smoke and Shekinah glory filled the temple of the Lord. There was so much noise, so much music, so much glory that the priest could not stand to minister for the house of the Lord was filled with the glory of God. No eye could have seen, no ear could have heard, and no heart could have ever imagined Something as glorious and spectacular as this. But friends, I'm so happy to tell you that as glorious and as wonderful as temple worship was, it has been replaced by something that is far more glorious and far more wonderful. As grand as temple worship was, it has been replaced by something that is even more grand through Christ. The Hebrew writer speaks of this transition in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 18. He says, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. We are a part of a new covenant. We are a part of a new law. We are members of a spiritual priesthood that is found in Christ. We no longer enter through an earthly temple, but we enter into a heavenly tabernacle. We no longer come to the Lord by the blood of bulls and goats, but we come to the Lord by the blood of Jesus Christ. We now have full and free access into the presence of God. We commune with God in three persons. And Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, as we gather together, as we meet in sweet communion, we are led into the throne room of God and we worship. We praise, we glorify, and we laud our Lord with psalms, hymns, 
and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. No eye could have seen, no ear could have heard, and no heart could have ever imagined something as wonderful as this. And so this morning, as we consider all of these things, we ask ourselves, why? Why do we do things the way that we do them? Why do we worship the Lord the way that we worship Him? Why do we sing? Why do we lift up our our hearts to God in praise? Why are there no trumpets? Why are there no cymbals? Why are there no harps? Why are there no castanets? Why are there no musical instruments? Why is this stage not large enough for a band? Why do we worship the Lord the way that we worship Him? Sadly, there are many people in the Lord's church who are unable to answer that question. Sadly, there are many people in the Lord's church who have absolutely no idea why we worship the Lord the way that we do. They have no idea why we sing hymns to the Lord. They have no idea why this stage isn't large enough for a band. They believe we do these things because this is what their parents did. They believe we do these things because this is what their grandparents did. This is the way that we have always worshipped the Lord. This is some type of church of Christ tradition. Friends, what we do here on Sunday mornings is not a church of Christ tradition. A church of Christ tradition is having Bible study at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. A church of Christ tradition is having Bible study on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock p.m. That is a tradition. But what we do here this morning, when we lift up our hearts to God in song, is not a tradition. And it is imperative that we understand why we sing to the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the Apostle Paul was dealing with a group of Christians who were unable to understand why they were worshiping the Lord. These Christians were not worshiping the Lord with understanding. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. During this time, Christians were able to speak in tongues. They prayed in tongues. They spoke and they prayed in languages that were completely foreign to them. And what Paul is saying is, If he is praying in this foreign language and has no idea what he is saying, the prayer is unfruitful. The prayer is pointless. And so what is he supposed to do? Paul says in verse number 15, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. When I pray, I'm not only going to pray with my spirit, but I'm going to pray with my mind. I want to be able to understand what it is that I am saying. How was Paul going to be able to understand this foreign language that he was praying in? He was going to have an interpreter. That interpreter would help him pray with his spirit and with his mind. Paul continues to make the point in the latter half of verse 15. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Some translations say I will sing with understanding. The point that he is making is, Worship to the Lord is pointless if you have absolutely no idea why you are doing it. 
when we sing, we must sing in spirit and we must sing in truth. We must sing with our spirit and we must also sing with our mind. And so this morning, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about why we sing. Here in this passage, we see that it is essential that when we come together on Sunday mornings and lift up our hearts to God in song, we understand exactly why we sing. The first reason that we sing is because God has spoken. We sing because God has spoken. From the very, very beginning of time, God spoke to His people and He made it very clear to them what they must do. In Genesis chapter 2, we learn how the Lord puts Adam and Eve in this blissful garden and He gave them very clear instructions. You must be fruitful, you must multiply, fill the earth, tend the garden, keep the garden. You can eat anything in this garden that you want except from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Those were God's clear instructions. He spoke to Adam and Eve and He told them exactly what they must do. Because Adam and Eve didn't do exactly what God told them to do, they were punished and cast out of the garden. From the very beginning of time, we see how God speaks and he tells his people exactly what they must do. In Genesis chapter 4, we learn how God spoke to Cain and Abel. He spoke to them and he told them exactly what was required to make an acceptable offering. And I know he told them exactly what was required because he rejected Cain's offering and he accepted Abel's offering. For the Lord to reject and for the Lord to accept, there had to have been a clear standard of what was right and what was wrong. Again, the point is, from the very beginning of time, God has made it very clear to his people what they must do. We see it in Genesis chapter 6. He gave Noah and his family very clear instructions on how to spare their lives from the flood. And because they listened to the Lord, their lives were spared. We see it in Exodus chapter 20. The Lord came to Moses and he gave him very clear instructions to tell the people, you should have no other gods before me. You shall not worship any graven images. You shall not take my name in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. This is how I expect to be worshipped. These are my expectations. From the very beginning of time, God speaks, and he is very clear to his people what he requires of them. The entire book of Leviticus is filled with command after command after command, expectation after expectation after expectation that God requires for his people. In Numbers chapter 10, if you will turn to Numbers chapter 10, we see how the Lord gives Moses very clear instructions on tabernacle worship, on the type of instruments to use for tabernacle worship, who was to play those instruments, when those instruments were to be played. Numbers chapter 10 and verse number 1, the Bible says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, make two silver trumpets of hammered work, you shall make them and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. Verse 8 and the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall blow the trumpets. The trumpets shall be to you for a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And when you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. Verse 10, 
on the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feast and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. Here in this passage, God gave Moses very specific instructions as it pertained to tabernacle worship. He said, use a trumpet, make the trumpet this way. This is who is supposed to play the trumpet, and this is when you must play the trumpet. Again, the point that I'm trying to make is, from the very beginning of time, God has spoken and he has told his people what they must do, exactly what they must do. In 2 Chronicles chapter 29, In 2 Chronicles chapter 29, we see how the Lord gives King David very specific instructions as it pertained to temple worship. 2 Chronicles chapter 29, the Bible says, And he, speaking of King David, stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, according to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet, for the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. Do you see it? Again, God gave King David very specific instructions on the type of instruments to use in temple worship, who was to play those instruments, and when those instruments were to be played. Someone would say, well, Tim, it's very clear that instruments were used in worship, but the point is, God didn't let Moses choose what type of instruments he wanted. God didn't let King David choose what type of instruments he wanted. The type of instruments that they used were commanded by the Lord. Because the point is, from the very beginning of time, God spoke and he told his people exactly what they must do. He spoke and he told Moses to use a trumpet. He spoke and he told King David to use a harp. And he speaks to us today, men and women who are a part of this new covenant, as Galatians chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 7, and Hebrews chapter 8 clearly states. He has spoken to men and women who are a part of this new covenant, and he has told us to worship him and to praise him with our lips. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19. The the Apostle Paul told the Christians in Ephesus not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit, singing and making melody in their hearts to the Lord with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That is God's command for his people today. Paul said again to the Christians in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 3, and verse number 16, Let the word of God dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. How? In psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In James chapter 5 and verse number 13, James tells these Christians, when they are joyful, when they are happy, do what? Sing praise to the Lord. And finally, in Acts chapter 16 and verse 25, we learn when Paul and Silas were in the Philippian jail, they were singing praises to the Lord. Do you see it? This is our command. From the very beginning of time, God has spoken and he has told his people exactly what they must do. He has spoken and he has told us today exactly how we must worship him. This is why we sing. But not only that, 
not only do we sing because God has spoken, but we sing because God is silent. God is silent. God spoke and he told us to sing, but he hasn't said anything else. He said nothing about a trumpet. He said nothing about a guitar. He said nothing about drums. He said nothing about a banjo. He said nothing about an organ. God spoke and he told us to sing, but he has said absolutely nothing about instruments. When it comes to instruments in New Testament worship, God is silent. Someone will say, well, Tim, uh, just because God hasn't said that we can use musical instruments doesn't mean that we can't use them. False. That's faulty logic. God's silence on a matter doesn't give us the liberty to do what we want to do. God's silence on a matter demands that we do what he has said. This logic makes very clear sense to us when we think about our parents. When our parents gave us $20 and they told us to go to the grocery store to buy bread and milk, we're not going to come back with ice cream and cookies. Why aren't we going to do that? Because we know our parents will be upset. Why will they be upset? Because we didn't buy what they told us to buy. Well, they didn't say we couldn't buy milk, uh, ice cream and cookies. It doesn't matter what they didn't say we couldn't buy. It matters what they said to buy. They're upset because we did not buy what they told us to buy. This logic makes sense to us when we consider our parents, our fallible parents. Why is it so hard for us to understand this when we consider our eternal God? God's silence on a matter does not give us the freedom to do what we want. It demands that we do what he has said. And any time man decides to take liberties and do things beyond what God has said, bad things happen. We see this in Numbers chapter 20. In Numbers chapter 20, the children of Israel were famished. They were whining and they are complaining. Moses and Aaron go to the Lord on behalf of the people, and God tells them, speak to the rock. If you speak to the rock, water will flow. Moses and Aaron go back to the children of Israel, and Moses strikes the rock. And guess what happened when Moses struck the rock? God was upset, and God told Moses and the generation of people he was with that they would not enter into the promised land. Well, that's, that's, that's kind of harsh. God never said that, that Moses uh, couldn't strike the rock. It doesn't matter what God said he could not do. It matters what God said he must do. And because Moses didn't do what God said he must do, he was punished. God's silence on a matter does not give us the liberty to do what we want. God's silence on a matter demands that we do what he has said. We see this again in Numbers chapter 20. In Numbers chapter 20, Nadab and Abihu offer profane or unauthorized fire before the Lord. They offered a type of fire that God had said nothing about. God was silent on the matter. And because they offered this type of fire, they were killed. Why were they killed? They were killed because they went beyond what God had said. They were killed because they did something that God had told them not to do. And God told them not to do it 
through his silence. God's silence does not give us the liberty to do what we want. It demands that we do what he has said. And when we fail to do what the Lord has said, when we go beyond what he has said, we are not glorifying him. He told Moses, I will be glorified. Because you struck that rock instead of spoke to it like I told you, I wasn't glorified. I am a God who deserves to be glorified. Because Nadab and Abihu offered that profane fire, God said, you have not upheld me as holy. When we go beyond what God has said, we are not revering him as a holy God. We are not glorifying him. When we bring musical instruments into our worship assembly, we are not honoring our Lord. Just because God hasn't said something doesn't mean that we can do it. We sing because God has spoken, and we sing because God is silent. I want to conclude this lesson by citing several early church leaders and historians and their views as it pertained to instrumental music. The first is Clement of Alexandria. He was an early church apologist, and he said, Leave the pipe to the shepherd, the flute to the men who are in fear of gods and are intent on their idol worshiping. Such musical instruments must be excluded. Dr. Frederick Lewis Ritter, director of the School of Music at Vassar College, said, We have no real knowledge of the exact character of the music which formed a part of the religious devotion of the first century congregations. It was, however, purely vocal. Instrumental music was excluded. We see Eric Werner in his book titled The Music of Post-Biblical Judaism said, the primitive Christian community held the same view as we know from apostolic and post-apostolic literature. Instrumental music was thought unfit for religious services. The Christian sources are quite outspoken in their condemnation of instrumental performances. Originally, only song was considered worthy of direct approach to the divinity. Hugo L., in his book, Music, History, and Ideas, says, Only singing, however, and no playing of instruments was permitted in the early Christian church. Now we're about to look at several quotes from denominational church leaders. I do not support everything that these denominational church leaders say. I want that point to be clear. But this is very interesting. Many of the denominational church leaders who bring into in- instruments into their assembly of worship today formerly were against musical instruments. Adam Clark, a Methodist commentator, said, Music as a science I esteem and admire, but instruments of music in the house of God I abominate and abhor. Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist preacher, we do not need them, speaking of mechanical instruments. They would hinder rather than help our praise. John Calvin, the founder of Presbyterianism, said, Musical instruments in celebrating the praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting of lamps, and the restoration of other shadows of the law. 
The Papists, therefore, have foolishly borrowed this as well as many other things from the Jews. Men who are fond of outward pomp may delight in that noise, but the simplicity which God recommends to us by the apostles is far more pleasing to him. We see again John Wesley, founder of Methodism. I have no objection to instruments of music in our chapels, provided they are neither seen nor heard. And I have under there laughing emoji because that's quite humorous to me. All of these denominational church leaders were against instrumental music, but there are so many denominational churches today that have musical instruments within their worship assembly. I could go on and on and on quoting these church leaders and historians, but I don't want to spend any more time talking about what men say because, quite frankly, I don't like getting up here quoting men. But I cite these men to make the point that what we do here is not some church of Christ tradition. What we do here is not something that we do simply because we've always done it. What we do here is something that has been understood from the very beginning of time. It is a stand on principle. It is a principle that was understood in the first century, the second century, the third century, and should be understood in the 21st century. It is a principle that our sovereign God has set. He is in control, and we are not. He has all wisdom, he has all authority, and he has all power. It is he who is seated on his high and lofty throne. Six-winged seraphim cry out to him, holy, holy, holy. Twenty-four elders fall down at his feet, crying out, worthy is the Lord. It is he who twists the oaks. It is he who strips the forest bare. It is in his temple where all cry, glory. Everything that has breath praises His name because He is the sovereign God. And He is the sovereign God who has spoken and He has told us exactly how to worship Him. He has told us to worship Him in spirit and in truth, John chapter 4. And the truth of the matter is, He has been very clear within the pages of the New Testament that we must worship Him in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to our in our our hearts to him. Nothing more, nothing less. Point blank, period. This is why we sing. We sing because God has told us to sing. We sing because he has not told us to do anything else. And we sing because he is sovereign. Today is January the 5th, 2020, which is the first Sunday of the new year. And I know this isn't the typical New Year's sermon, but as we go throughout this year, as we live our lives, may we be people who resolve to respect and to appreciate the sovereignty of God in our everyday lives. When it comes to the way we worship Him, when it comes to the way we work, when it comes to how we behave in school, when it comes to how we raise our families, may we recognize and appreciate the sovereignty of God in every aspect of our lives. He is in control. We are not. We must deny ourselves and take up our crosses daily and serve him and follow him and submit to him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is the perfect opportunity to become one. You do so by hearing the word of God, believing that Jesus Christ is God's son, 
repenting and turning away from your sins, confessing in the name of Jesus, having your sins completely washed away in the watery grave of baptism. If you've done that before, but you've made mistakes and you've fallen away and you would like to make things right this morning, or if you have any other spiritual need that we can help you with, please come to the front while we stand and sing the song.